Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, creeps, and welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'm Ash, and with me, as always, is my co-host, John. Delighted to be back on the infernal plane of podcast creation. <laughs> uh, and today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Connor Habib from Against Everyone with Connor Habib, one of my favorite podcasts, yeah. continuing the tradition of using this show to talk to people that I think are awesome. How's it going, Connor? That's, that's why we got Get started that, doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's the best reason to start a podcast, because you're lonely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, where is the lie? <laughs> Uh, I'm doing great and I'm excited to talk about horror, something I it is so important to me, but I don't get to talk about almost ever. We are we are happy to provide you with an outlet to get spooky. Thank you. <laughs> so for our for our listeners who might not be uh familiar, perhaps they've been living under a rock for forever now, uh could you uh tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and your amazing podcast? <laughs> sure. So uh Against Everyone with Connor Beeb is my podcast. It comes out generally once a week. And um, it's a show where I do away with small talk and try to have big talk. In other words, talk about complex ideas, philosophical ideas, political ideas, spiritual ideas, but like in a really easy um, and engaging and fun way with guests who are very often countercultural figures, people like the radical journalist Abby Morton. I've had... Yes. Um, Two of the, <laughs> the the other side of the leftist spectrum, two of the uh, hosts of Chapo Trap House mm -hmm. have been on the show, Felix <laughs> and Will. Um, I've had uh, an, the occultist Gordon White on my show, the horror writer Brian Evanson, um, and Kelly Link has been on the show. So it's all uh, some experimental punk musician Tim Kinsella. It's all over the place. And um, But the main thing is that I like having deep conversations with people um, that aren't just like, oh, you just had a book come out what's the book about you know um and you know so i so that's my main gig i'm also a writer and a sex workers rights activist and i'm getting a phd and uh actually studying paranormal and paranormal investigators and people who have paranormal supernatural experiences uh, i've just started that so that is going to be like i don't know like seven years of my life so we'll see <laughs> we'll, see, right. we'll see where that goes and um yeah, that's, I think that's, that's it. I have a Patreon. So I know you'll probably say that at the end of the show, but since people like click it off as soon as you say, so Connor, where can people find you? That's just, it's just done. Then. <laughs> so it's patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib if you like what you hear today or on my show. Excellent. And we encourage everyone to subscribe to the podcast, to share it, and to give Connor a bunch of money. <laughs> but that's that's it. All right, thanks guys. Right, yeah, really this has been nice a great episode. Thank you. See you later. <laughs> Let's wrap it there. Thank yeah. you for it. Uh, no, we're both big fans of Against Everyone. Um, you've had Peter Rollins on a couple of times, which is oh, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's a he's someone I'm a big big fan of. And the last episode you did on money uh, with Conor McCabe, mm. really really great episode. If there are people listening who are maybe kind of newer to leftist political economy, I can't recommend that enough as a really great starting place for the show. 
Awesome. Thank you. That, that was, that was a great one. And Peter, I'm glad you brought up Peter, who's a radical theologian, who is one of my closest friends. He's actually been on the show three times, but most recently it was him and psychoanalytic theorist, Todd McGowan. Mm. And, uh, that was a hard episode because I really deeply disagree with them on certain points. And I try not to like debate on the show, you know, yeah. it's just not, I'm just not interested in it, but, um, yeah, that was that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Peter's a someone who you could I, I he's someone I don't see ever doing small talk really. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's because you haven't lived with him for a year like I have. It's okay, all yeah. small talk, man. <laughs> it's just like point. where do you want to get a sandwich? Which is great, but yeah. get, getting uh, a sandwich with Connor Habib would be an amazing YouTube show. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's a podcast spinoff right there. That's a podcast spinoff. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the idea, guys. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, tuck, tuck that one away for a rainy day. <laughs> and now, a word from our sponsors. John? What was that? Oh, man. <clears throat> this, is, this is heavier than I thought. Did, John, is that, is that an unlicensed nuclear accelerator? Um... Yeah, so, look, the pod hasn't been making enough money lately, so I've signed up with uh, Buster, the app that connects haunted property owners with freelance paranormal experts. Buster makes you feel good. Are you sure that thing is safe? The good people at Buster say it is. Uh, well, um, Ash, I'm... I'm gonna have to go. There's a Weatherspoons in Stoke-on-Trent that booked a containment for a level three free-floating semi-corporeal apparition. Wish me luck. Dear listeners, that was a dramatic telling of what could happen to your ghosts. I mean hosts, without your support. To keep HV above ground, sign up to our Patreon where you'll get access to our Discord server, early episodes, and the exclusive Arcane Book Club of Horror. If each of our listeners contributed just a few dollars a month, we wouldn't have to haul around experimental ghostbusting technology. Remember to like, share, and review our show wherever premium podcasts are sold. Now back to the program. We are here to talk about uh, all things... Uh, spooky we're talking about Ari Aster's brand new release Midsummer. all of us have I think pretty complicated feelings about it so this is going to be interesting but before we start talking about the film in detail as always it is time for Ash to offer one of his just trademark plot recaps take it away summer is finally here and for film lovers that means one thing feel good road trip movies Put down that Leoforne and quit futzing with your Sudersvik and tag along for a wild ride to Helsingland. We join Danny and Christian, a couple that prove the straits are at it again, and their collegiate pals as they walk like absolute lemmings into the sacrificial rituals of a Swedish death cult. While the power of folk horror keeps us on the edge of our seats chanting, A crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude. It writhes, it writhes, with mortal pangs the mimes become its food, and the angels sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Midsummer lets you sink into the desperate fear of an academic deadline, and wondering if you should have emailed your supervisor <laughs> about the change in direction of your thesis. <laughs> 
Aster's uh, Midsummer, everyone. <laughs> Honestly, this has become my favorite part of doing this show is listening to Ash's plot recaps. It's the only reason. It's the only reason he lets me carry on co-hosting this this show is because I love him so much. Um, that, right. Okay. So obviously spoilers abound in this here discussion, but you know the rules by now if you've listened to the show at all. Um, where should we start? Where should we start with with Midsummer? Uh, should we talk about um, maybe Hereditary leading into this movie a, a little bit? I mean, that's something that was on my mind because it plays a lot of the same sort of tricks as Hereditary. Um, you know, just both filmically and also plot-wise, I think. You know, I don't know if you guys noticed that. Yeah, that yeah. It was sort of reaching for some of the same stuff. And you'll you wonder by the end of watching Midsummer, and obviously this is a spoiler, but if Ari Aster can make a movie without someone being crowned for some pagan ritual purpose. <laughs> 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 D- director trope, being crowned for a pagan ritual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's the only filmmaker I've ever seen do something like that twice so obviously. <laughs> like, it, it wasn't, he didn't try to make it different, really. You know, it was very interesting. Yeah. But anyway, so I just, I think... Just to say, a lot of our expectations watching this film came out of watching Hereditary, which I will just start this conversation by saying that is one of my favorite, you know, that's one of my favorite movies. I mean, it's certainly one of my favorite horror movies, and it's one of my favorite movies. I love Hereditary for many reasons. But um, one of it, one of the reasons is just the pure shock of seeing some uh, a horror movie about emotional pain. Mm. Um, and I suppose I had expected... Uh, I suppose I had expected more or like way less um, in in this movie. I expected Hmm. to be um, really like, you know, this is a confirmation of, of, of everything I saw in Hereditary and more and it's incredible or like just a spectacular failure. But in fact, I felt a little just sort of. Uh, let down um, by <laughs> I wonder if people think this by it, like a lack uh, a lack of trying in in midsummer. So I'll just stop there and maybe let you guys <laughs> say what you were thinking about as you went in after having seen Hereditary as well. Um, yeah, I I sort of agree actually. I really really like Hereditary a lot, and I think uh, what's really interesting to me is I think it chimes with the, with something that's starting to happen in contemporary horror film, which is horror film that deals with kind of emotional catharsis in a really uh, honest way. Um, I know it was very meaningful, Hereditary, for a lot of people, especially people who've maybe experienced grief or loss recently. Um, but I'm kind of like you. I, I came out of it going, ah, it didn't, it didn't, Midsummer didn't really have the same kind of weight to it. Uh, I, I went to see it with um, Gareth from Death Sentence and we both walked out and we were both like, that was a deeply silly film in lots of ways. <laughs> yes. I, like, it's, not, it's, not, it's not bad. It's not like catastrophic. It's not a, like a car crash. But it, it certainly lacks the same kind of heft and weight to it that Hereditary had. Yeah, I definitely felt that in, in terms of Midsummer, like that 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 first act is just establishing just so much real lived in emotional weight 
Mm, like like mm-hmm. the, the suicides are very or the suicide um, double murder is very present and very heavy. Danny's Danny's inability to kind of f- find a path through this and how it's just eating her alive is just really kind of realistically depicted like the party scene where where everything's kind of like anechoic and she she's despite being surrounded by people who are ostensibly her friends just completely isolated like this mm-hmm. is so real and so heavy and then we like do do this 180 total shift to like a wacky 60s folk horror movie <laughs> and it's just like like that 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 emotional thread just completely unravels for me as as we start to move into the the second and third acts of the film yeah it's interesting that first chapter is my favorite part of the movie oh same yeah um, same and same. you know and i think part of it is also she, i mean she danny is just a sort of she's kind of like a shitty person as well yeah. i mean in the way that she's sort of she's she's just rather insufferable when you watch her you know try to uh appease and also manipulate her boyfriend yes. you know and and just no 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 it's fine you know at one point he goes to leave the apartment um you know and say he's gonna do something else after i have a conflict mm-hmm. which admittedly he's he's a shithead as well yeah. but like she you know then she just pretends that there's nothing wrong and everything's fine and she's over it and you know so there's there's all this like you know an intense repression of communication mm-hmm. and feeling in that first uh act first chapter that like i really i really love it and some of the camera work stuff that echoes hereditary where it sort of follows someone moving from one room to the next um as if they're on a stage you know it's almost like watching uh some parts of Mm -hmm. opening night by cassavetes which i also Mm, think is a horror movie you know um it it follows her you know follows them that way and it's disorienting the the sort of um opening scene where it's moving from the trees to the uh you know sort of pulling from one place um the woods and over into you know a neighborhood and then a house and then a bedroom i feel like that sort of connective tissue there is really interesting but it doesn't you're right like as soon as they get somewhere else (laughs) which is supposed to be the weight of the movie not only does it kind of leave that behind in a way that's unsatisfying but it's just it's not it's weirdly not as good even though it's more visually interesting and one of the sort of quips i made about the movie is like hey if you guys want to see a two and a half hour long perfume commercial you got it you know like absolutely it it really feels like you know really super stylized in a way that reminds me of you know like tom Ford movies or commercials or something like that, but it it doesn't. Uh, but anyway, I'm I'm encompassing the whole film, and I don't want to you know take it away from you know going through bit by bit. But overall, uh, I think it departs from what it could have been um, as it departs from that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, I definitely like the second the second they get to to Sweden that that emotional weight doesn't really do anything anymore you know like like sure it it informs a lot of what's happening and the parts that i really do like in the second and third acts the the parts where where danny is kind of embracing like sharing her pain with this community like like those those parts i thought were very well done but then like the the rest of the movie is just like hijinks and some really subdued gore mm. and it's kind of like 
that that emote like the the that first shot we get of 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 her sister her sister's dead body is just like so flatly horrifying in its reality like mm-hmm. the little bit of vomit on the floor and just just like like the how the camera follows the hose from the tailpipe of the car up to her sister is just like the, the the reality in that is just so crushing and then like we have uh like mark's character start start like like riffing for the rest of the film and it's just like so tonally inconsistent uh we we, we will get we will get yeah, we'll, we'll get into mark <laughs> and, and taking a piss on the sacred log tree <laughs> but uh, i think that's really true though i think one of the things i know we we probably going to spend quite a bit of time picking out the things that we didn't really like or didn't really feel work about this film, but I think one of the things that really does work and one of the things that Ari Aster is extremely good at is mood and atmosphere. Yeah. And that, that first act is just crushing. And like uh, Florence Pugh's performance as Danny, I actually think is uh, really, really passive in like the second half of the entire film. Um, but as somebody who's like trying to process what would be uh, a kind of unimaginable amount of trauma uh, without any sort of support system, I, I you know I buy it. You know that that it is it is creepy. It is incredibly depressing. It is really horrifying. Like the first act, great, love it, <laughs> and then it all starts to go downhill. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think just to like put a point on what I was saying a bit, like I am all in for a movie that radically shifts its uh, shifts ev- well everything that yes. shifts its color, that shifts its tone, that shifts, but it's got to live up to uh, ideally exceed you know um, the first the first act, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, it's got to at least live up to it. And I think that that is the problem for me. I don't mind the the shift to this colorful, strange uh, landscape um, populated with strange rituals and, you know, strange seeming people. Um, But I do, I I am let down um, that it, that it doesn't carry the same, like a mutual, uh, a mutual intensity, even if the intensities are brought to me by something completely different. Mm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And um, while I was watching the film, I, I made a connection, and this might be a little strange, but it really reminded me of The Wizard of Oz. You know, we, 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 start, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we start in this uh, very grounded, very realistic, if, if, if not a little strange, reality, and then we, we take this dramatic shift into a bright, colorful place. But in The Wizard of Oz, like, all of those characters and those plot lines, like they continue through that dramatic shift, right? There, there, there's a lot of unifying elements. The resolutions are tight. And in Midsummer, I feel like once we go through that shift, we, we kind of lose touch with a lot of the grounding and inciting incidents of the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great comparison actually. And I wonder if he had that. I, oh, it's so good that I almost wonder if he had it in mind Ooh, when he yeah. decided to do it yeah and we then we arrive in sweden um there is there is one moment of that arrival which i really like which is the characters are introduced to sweden by looking out of the window of the airplane and it's this kind of beautiful edenic uh landscape and then the camera pulls through the window and you're in this middle of like 
huge amounts of turbulence and shit. And I'm like, okay, that's a neat, that's a neat mm -hmm. bit of visual storytelling. I like that a lot. Uh, and then we arrive in, in rural Sweden and immediately everybody starts getting plied with loads of psychoactive drugs. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. um, yeah, that's really funny. And, and our characters become these kind of passive, uh, tripped out sort of puppets. So I think, I think going for this idea of like everything that happens to them is fated almost is really interesting, but I don't really think the film manages to pull that off. And isn't it like, it's never really that interesting when people take drugs in movies. I mean, like, you know, maybe altered states or something yeah, like that, yeah. where the movie is like really about that. You have to but go all in. It all, yeah. It just all reminds me of the Simpsons episode where Homer eats like the, 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 the pepper, you know, that's too hot. <laughs> and he like goes on a trip and like, like it'll never be better than that. You yeah. know? <laughs> so, but, but it's always like, you know, I was glad that it, it contained its imagery in a way like it didn't just seem to throw in completely arbitrary stuff. Mm -hmm. But was there anything particularly interesting about the hallucinogenic experience or what was happening in there? Like it was just that we got the sense of things pulsating or breathing yeah. or whatever. And that to me, again, it was, it was cool. Like it looked, um, it looked really interesting. It was really pretty and a little uncomfortable. And I can appreciate it on that level. But, you know, the most substance we get in that sort of thing is, you know, again, Danny having these kinds of, they're almost like flashbacks. And what does that really give us? I mean, it doesn't really give us anything other than it being visually interesting, which if it were a, an action movie, like I just saw Spider-Man uh, far from home, which is, I also thought completely excellent, but there's all these like hallucinatory, like, or hallucinogenic scenes in that where Spider-Man's being manipulated by the supervillain Mysterio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, there's nothing, you know, nothing <laughs> in this movie compares to that <laughs> visually. And part of it is because they're utilized for action. They're not just sort of tone setters. The tone has already been sort of set for me by the grief and so i don't need um flashing images again of her family there's one point where it comes up later where i think her parents walk by her in a crowd yeah. and i find that really creepy and interesting but for the most part um a lot of what the hallucinogenic stuff it could have been done you know once or it could have been uh it, or, or it could have been done for some other effect but i kind of played out too long and too often and gave too little honestly and it's a bit like dream sequences you know mm -hmm. um what do they you have to consider what they give and what the stakes are in those cases i you know there's one of my favorite movies is winter's bone but the only thing i don't like about that movie is there's like a quick dream sequence which just doesn't give anything it's like black and white and there's like a squirrel or something i don't know if you guys remember this but <laughs> yeah, you just yeah, kind yeah. of wonder what this has to do you know what is this what is this lending to us that just the exteriority of the characters being an unfolding actual events um does not give us more of yeah, yeah. I thought like as far as far as like the hallucinogenic scenes themselves, like 
in, in, the, in the first one, like when, when that first hallucinogenic scene happens and she's kind of like sitting on the hillside and Pele is like doing kind of like a, a life coach speech about breathing. And then like, you know, Dan, Danny looks at her foot and the grass is like very, very like, sur- like um, surreal isn't necessarily the right word here, but very like uncannily kind of coming up through her foot. You know, my, my, my first thought then was like, oh, they're going to establish a theme where like these hallucinogenics are going to be like the vehicle through which Danny reconnects and, and starts to kind of like find herself again. And like that, they, they do that a little bit, you know, like all of like the kind of like uh, herbal teas the cult plies her with, like, like this is kind of her finding her place in the cult. But, but I think you're, you're, you're completely right. Like it's not, it's not done with enough strength to really sell it. And a lot of the scenes when like everybody's just kind of high, it's like, it's like when you're the sober one in the room and you're watching a bunch of people who are like, you know, starting to yeah, trip, yeah. like they're <laughs> totally. having a blast, but you're, you're out, you're decidedly outside of that experience. And it just looks like a bunch of your friends being weird. <laughs> yeah. Cause the issue is, is like, uh, there's a tension here, right? Between they're being plied with drugs, obviously to make them passive, mm-hmm. but there's also the idea that Danny has to actively choose to integrate herself into this yeah. new, uh, communal family, um, and there's a tension there because you can't have both. You can't reduce your characters with, you can't ply them with loads of hallucinogenic tea in order to make them passive and, and obedient and have them exerting agency to make a choice which results in a horrifying ending that we can kind of see coming from, you know, uh, literally miles away. <laughs> um, so I think, I think it would have been better if they had either like done, done it once, like you suggested, or they had properly committed to this idea of the way that the, this film uses psilocybin and other hallucinogenic teas is like, this is that one of their weapons to sort of indoctrinate people rather than having them need to willingly choose to be a part of it. Do you really think that you need that kind of stuff for character development in a story? Like remember mm-hmm. in the, in the mid to late seventies and maybe even before that too, but there was this whole like, um, there was this whole wave of plays and movies and novels that were all about someone being psychoanalyzed. And like, that's how the character development came about. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. why are you doing this weird thing? Oh, it's because you had this happen. You know, yeah. it becomes like, so like monocausal in a way. Yeah, too. Good point. It's like, you know, and, and I feel like, Maybe hallucinogenic drugs and psychedelics are culturally as well as in art and narratives now just being used to sort of do the same sort of thing. Like, well, maybe we can imagistic rather than having someone sort of talk about the weird things like it's Timothy Hutton on the couch and ordinary people like (laughs) like suddenly having an outburst about Mary Tyler Moore. It's like we can have um, a way to present imagistically what someone's psyche is and to me like it's just that that it sort of seems like a yeah like sort of a monocausal like predictable cheap shot and maybe you know it's funny that you were spending a bit of time on this because I'm beginning to wonder if it's one of the reasons why I found the film like not so interesting because what are the stakes of that really you know yeah I think that's a that that point about causality is really important because I think that brings us on to how this film ends and the and the central dynamic between Danny and Christian. 
Um, because I think the causality there is also something that doesn't really work. And the film kind of strains to make it seem like we go, yeah, yeah, he, he deserved this. He totally deserved <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. And, and I'm like, really? This, this is what we're, go- we're going for? And, you know, it's probably well known that Ari Aster wrote the film after going through a breakup. Um, and I, 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 I think all of that makes sense. But I also think the ending is this kind of wildly disproportionate finale to something that hasn't really... The causes haven't been planted in deeply enough to make that work. What did you both think of, the, of how this film ends? And, and maybe Danny and Christian... Uh, I think it's. I think you're right that you can see it from a mile away, and so in there, that that sense, it's a little boring. Um, I I think that this is sort of a side note, but I think that it's going to be really annoying that like gay guys are going to like now be the May Queen and the guy in the bear suit for <laughs> Halloween and like. Oh. <laughs> Holidays uh, now, like cute, that is cute, cute couple costume idea. Right. Totally, that's going to be a thing for a while. Um, <laughs> and but I, yeah, I mean, I also think yes, there's like a really unearned like like change in relationality. I mean, the the only way I can sort of see it kind of uh, shaking off the critique that it's just yeah, it's that that's not. like an okay way for it to end relationally and like that is by someone said, well, it's all just sort of a grand metaphor or whatever. But again, that is so boring and uninteresting when compared to the first 20 minutes of the movie where we are being really asked to uh, be heart wrenched, if not heartbroken and, and feel a real kind of intensity. And then just to move into a place that's just completely metaphorical. And I don't think that that's what it is. I think we're meant to take the events unfolding in the movie as the events that are actually unfolding for the characters. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, but so, you know, I do think it's, you're right. Like the ways that we're meant to felt that we're meant to feel, I don't even, I don't feel them as cathartic. I don't feel them as earned by what happens in the, in the movie. I felt, you know, yes, a feeling of disgust in the appropriate and sort of good way. When you watch a movie like this, when he was paralyzed and they, you know, just put him in the, the bear suit and, you know, set him on fire. But do I feel any sense of loss about what happens to any of the characters yeah. after they leave? No, they're, they're all completely unlikable. I mean, <laughs> it just like I couldn't care less what happens to any of them. Accurate. You know, at a, at a certain point. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As far as like kind of the resolution we have with Christian and Danny, like I, I really like your point, uh, Connor, at the beginning of this when like, you know, like they're, they're, they're just kind of a shitty couple. You know, like, 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 yeah. like Danny is so codependent and Christian just, just can't like get, get the nerve to, to break up with her and kind of end this relationship, which, you know, from the beginning we understand has just been dragging on for a while anyway. And like, you know, like what's, what, what, what I think like this movie wants to do is it wants to enter itself into like this, this kind of like proud horror tradition of, of a woman finding her strength and her power against the forces of a patriarchy. 
right? And Christian is kind of meant to be the vehicle for for the patriarchy in this film. But there's no there's there, there's not a lot of weight put into that. Like Christian Christian isn't an evil guy. He's not despotic. He's just just a trash dick boyfriend, you know. And as we progress through the film, like like that inciting incident where we're kind of like Danny fully realizes her disgust in Christian is when Christian has been like drugged by a cult and is being forced to have sex in order to kind of uh, enrich the cult's gene pool or something. And like that's a, I think like, you know, like the movie is trying to give us that moment is like, OK, like now Christian deserves to be killed for Danny's fulfillment. And I think that like that that isn't established strongly enough and as as a moment in and of itself that scene isn't quite adequate for communicating that like okay like now now christian can die now we fully understand like his character as kind of like this cathexis of of like evil oppression in the world and it like like it's just not it's just not a good through line yeah he's just he's just a he's just a a, a shitty boyfriend He's a, you know, he's he's this kind of passive uh, guy who lacks kind of agency and is unwilling to kind of honestly work towards what he actually wants, which is to break off his relationship. Uh, but uh, that isn't quite the same thing as as there seems to be something that doesn't quite join up here between yeah. the the characterization that goes into him throughout the entire course of the film and that pivotal moment the 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 cultic sex scene um danny's reaction and then the film's conclusion there's a moment there where you go hang on this does not all join up in a way that you seem to think that it does Mm Well, and she's a shitty girlfriend i mean there's no there's no change between the reason (laughs) there's a complex relational thing happening between danny and christian when he wants to leave her but then her family dies Mm -hmm. That's complex and that's interesting to watch how that would unfold because it's interesting to see how he's going to respond. But as far as you can tell from looking at the way her behavior is expressed and typified by her friends, like what she does before her family dies and after is not any different. It's just that she's sad. So, (laughs) so she's not really that much more interesting. She's just grieving. Mm -hmm. Like there's been no change there. So to me, like he's, he's a dick, you know, who is struggling to, to leave her because the relationship just wasn't working. Mm -hmm. He becomes more of a dick in a way because he's not being supportive when she's grieving, but also like you shouldn't have to stay in a relationship with somebody because they're grieving. I mean, I'm not like, I I mean, I'm not saying that you like just (laughs) (laughs) kick them out of your life. Oh, sorry. I don't want to be here for this. (laughs) However, like, her behavior didn't really sort of change like her, you know, and I'm not saying that there aren't social factors Mm -hmm. that lead to men and women having these kinds of dynamics with each other. That's certainly true, but it's, but there's nothing in there to suggest that like the two people, the way they were, you know, before the relationship um, went down the path it did because her family died, like, if this, if the events of the movie happened before the grieving, you know, the rest of the events of the movie happened, you know, without her family dying, like you would never think that this was really earned and her behavior didn't change. So why would you think that this ending was like earned anyway? You know? 
Yeah, yeah. And I think you, you bring up a really good point in that, like, Christian doesn't really have, like, obligation isn't the right word, but Christian, Christian really doesn't have, like, like, like a need to stay in this relationship. And that, like, like, his, like, putting aside the fact that they were going to break up before um, the, the tragic death of her family, like, the the amount of weight that Danny is putting on Christian and the responsibility that she's putting on him is is so massive, right? Like like Christian is is becoming like the rock in Danny's world, and that that is a massive weight to to carry for your partner. And you know, even putting aside the fact that like the the night that that this trauma kind of happens, Christian was like tossing back and forth the idea of dumping her like that is intense that that is a lot to deal with interpersonally with a person even under the best circumstances you using this kind of like metaphorically to suggest that like christian is deserving sumeri execution at the hands of a cult is just like such a wild stretch for me hmm. i think you're right connor there's that there's a great moment just after um Danny's found out that her parents and sister are now all dead and she's lying like unconsolable on the on that little two-seater couch with uh Christian. And there's this slow pull-in on Christian, uh who looks like trapped. And that's an interesting moment because suddenly, like, he has to choose something, right? He has to do something. He can't just keep going on having this. Uh, kind of endless, interminable debate with his friends, with his like irritating bro friends about whether he should whether he should end this relationship that isn't really working for anybody. But then we just jump six months forward, and clearly nothing has happened. So there's this that's <laughs> right. that yeah. there's an interesting like relationship drama slash domestic horror film that happens in those six months <laughs> where they where they where they work out just how kind of toxic this relationship has become but like nothing happens because he's this he's this passive guy who doesn't really have uh you, you know in psychoanalysis they talk about this all the time the kind of disavowed desire you know we don't really want mm-hmm. what we say we want and it's about naming the desire which is the important thing and he's he is singularly incapable of doing that which is really the only reason why he ends up in the barn being burned to death at the end yeah, I, you know what's so funny? I forgot. I forgot. I actually saw this movie with Peter Rollins. So <laughs> we, went to, we we did. We went to see this movie together, and he was like, "Yeah, I like, like he he kind of liked it, but he just sort of was like caught up in the forward motion of it unfolding, mm-hmm. you know." Yeah, but it's yeah. funny that you bring up that psychoanalytic point um, because you're making me think like there isn't. <laughs> How do I say? Actually, let me just sort of step back and say, isn't it interesting that we're talking about this? Like, this is the thing that we're focusing on. Like, what does that go to show us about the huge, elaborate, visual (laughs) (laughs) horror cult stuff? Like, we haven't, you know, it's like we're we're trying to sort of like figure out like how these relationship dynamics might have played out realistically who we're supposed to sympathize with and all that kind of stuff and i think that that is something that the movie really struggles with and doesn't get right and so it is you know what we focus on because it had so much promise there but Mm. then ultimately again like if this is what we're focusing on and the rest of it has all just become sort of like 
Oh yeah, and then there was like yeah, like a bunch of women standing around and breathing while he like <laughs> fucked somebody who put a pubic hair in a pie that she baked him. Like why you know that should be more interesting to us. It would have been if John Waters made the movie. Oh my god, you know, yes. like we would be like <laughs> talking about that constantly, right? But it's not because it doesn't. It it all sort of ends up being flat. I actually like I wanted to talk about the the sacrifice. So. Yeah. The two mm. people um, giving their lives when they're, what, 72, was it, or something like that? And and walking off the cliff and hopefully smashing their faces on this rock, but then not, you know, one of them doesn't. Um, and, you know, that moment, I think, when that happened, I was very excited for the movie again because I thought, well, this movie will be a movie about cultural... Um, about cultural relativism yes. and their anthropologists and they're they're gonna have to struggle with this and they kind of did but it just sort of in a half-hearted way and and one of the reasons why is because there wasn't much for us to care about the culture that they entered either like again care about it visually but do we really care about this sort of inner workings of that culture and how it works and who the people are and all that kind of stuff well we might be excited to see what happens but um I, I felt like that was something else that could have been developed you know in great promise there aren't a lot of there are some horror movies that say there are but there aren't a lot of horror movies about anthropology and doing ethnographies you know like yeah. there are some that employ anthropologists as part of the theme you know or usually there's like the expert that comes in who's been tracking something for a long time and then you know is killed by it because they're a minor character mm -hmm. or whatever but i think like this was um this had a lot of promise in that and it sort of sort of didn't live up to it. And I have some other things to say about that, but I'll stop. I was going to say at some point we really need to segue and talk about like how this movie uh, enter, enters into discourse with higher education. I'll put it that way for now. <laughs> yeah, this is this is going to give a lot of grad students very unrealistic expectations about what writing a PhD thesis is like. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my god! Like like I was just imagining like like what kind of like 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 stroke is his supervisor going to have when he comes back and he was like, yeah, so I, I snuck into this cult. I stole their religious text. I took a bunch of pictures of it. And like, now I want to go talk to the ethics board about finishing my project. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but what's, but what's so weird about this is that they, they watch the, the ceremony at the, at the, at the cliff edge. Mm -hmm. Um, where they go, oh yeah, everybody willingly gives their life, and you're like, yeah, that's why they both looked so sad and afraid for the entire meal that you just had. <laughs> um, uh, and then, and then uh, Christian and Danny both go, what? Well, that was weird. And then we immediately kind of segue into this weird discussion about, hey, brah, you stole my thesis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of like, I mean, that does kind of describe grad students in a way, <laughs> in, you know, um, without sort of, without revealing who it is. I know somebody who's an anthropologist who the culture he was in, like as part of the culture, there's a whole sort of witchcraft thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the, and, and, and while he was there, someone was killed mm -hmm. and he called his advisor or he called, um, 
he called, I don't actually think it was his advisor. He called another academic and was like, what do I do? And the academic was like, ah, yes, the post-colonial hybridity yep. encounter, blah, blah. And, and he was like, I mean, like, what the fuck do I do? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and so I do think that there's this funny kind of like, um, this funny kind of way in which the academic stuff, like that is how academics react to situations. And then they're sort of fumbling around mm -hmm. asking these overly direct questions. Um, the sneaking well, in and taking pictures of the book was like, you know, way too much, but the, but that kind of thing, I thought, you know, that to me was, was good. And to his credit, I will say Ari Aster, like, you know, having an artist and an artist conflict be in hereditary, one of the main things that's going on, having anthropology students deciding to move the protagonists into interesting cultural places, I think is really uh, exciting. And I wish more people would do it in horror movies than just having, you know, um, a bunch of college kids get a, get a cabin, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but again, it's kind of like li live up to it more, you know, live up to the conflicts and opportunities that that gives you a bit more than just two people fighting over their thesis. Like you said. Yeah. yeah I mean, th that's kind of the part of the problem, right? That goes back to what you were saying about how the film really struggles to actually put you inside this culture and make you invest in it. Um, it happens a little bit where Danny ends up kind of getting drawn into some of the day-to-day -day activities, and I started to go, okay, I sort of feel like you're on the inside looking outwards for a moment. But it's really telling that you put these people into, you, you have this incredibly rich, complex setting, and the only way that we can kind of give some stakes to what's going on is like the tedious academic debate on which outsider is going to get to write this up and publish it in nature. Um, <laughs> like, right. Or if they get high. The Oracle was another detail of this, which was not great. Right. They have this, uh, the con continuing this kind of long trope of horror movies, turning those uh, people with, uh, disabilities into like monstrous figures um, uh, which I thought was really lazy actually and the character was not really necessary yeah there's, there, there's no just... payoff for it no not at all yeah can we can we talk about like so the movie that does so many of these things so well and so profoundly in such a creepy way is the white ribbon and, mm. it, you know, it has a lot of these kinds of figures in it and like the strange rituals and the, the underlying current of violence and the creepiness and like the beautiful, you know, quaint village and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. There aren't the outsiders in the same kind of way in that movie. So it's a little more claustrophobic almost. And um, it's harder for you to find somebody that you might line yourself up with but i feel like you know any of these you're, you're right with the oracle like there are ways to have characters that seem sort of wiser or like outsiders mm -hmm. or like they somehow have some kind of power or sway even in whatever might be their vulnerabilities. And I think there are characters like that. And well, I mean, children in, in white, in white ribbon are like that in some way, but you, you also like, 
you're you're right. It was kind of like an easy yeah. way to pull that off. Gosh, as we talk about this, me, I'm liking it less and less. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I mean, I didn't like it to begin with. I was like really irritated, but I thought, you know, um, but but the thing is, I didn't even really want to think about it that much after it was over. I think that was the real problem. Like, I just I remember seeing someone say like, "Midsummer is a movie that will stay with you for days," uh. which also doesn't sound great. Like, you want a movie to stay with you for like years? It, it, like, it'll stay with days, you for you know? days, like a bad psilocybin high. <laughs> Yeah, right, or like strep throat. So like I just, so, so like I, you know, I, I saw it and I didn't think, I thought about it for, you know, like a half hour after the movie, you know, talking to my friends. And then I thought about it when I tweeted about it. And then I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to talk about it on that podcast. But now that we're actually sort of like getting into it, I'm feeling less, like I'm feeling less and less like happy yeah, I'm feeling less and less happy with the experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I get what you mean. And I think that maybe that brings us on to talking about some of the decided kind of bigger picture reasons of, of maybe why this film doesn't really hang together. I think lots of it, I think we can all agree, has been done better before and elsewhere, even even like the body horror stuff that kind of kicks off in the last yeah. 15 minutes or so, I was like, oh, Ari Aster watched Hannibal this year, I see. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, as somebody... So is, Hannibal did it better. As, as somebody who's into like extremely graphic horror movies, like, eh? Like, is this, is this mm -hmm. really like the... Because I really, I liked the... When, when, the, when the old woman jumps from the rocks and, and, and just kind of like bounces on the ground once and we see it from the perspective of the crowd... And when we, when we get that like that that real that visceral like like crunch foley work, like I that sequence I really enjoyed, you know, because that's 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 not a perspective we get very often in horror, right? We don't really get to appreciate an individual death from a distance very often, you know. Like usually, like when we're seeing people die from a distance in horror movies, it's like a, a giant monster just laying waste to a whole swath of people. And then, like, when we experience individual deaths, you know, like, it's it's Michael Myers slicing someone up, you know? it's It's got a lot of spectacle to it. But the flatness of that was really effective for me. But then, like, what's the next thing that immediately happens is, like, somebody sledgehammers a Halloween prop for, like, 30 minutes straight. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And again, it's like, what, what is up with, like, the head destruction? So there's the crowning in Hereditary that mm -hmm. happens in this. Mm -hmm. And there's also the decapitation slash head destruction <laughs> that happens in this. Yeah. Uh, Ari Aster has got his go-to moves. I think that's true. He's working <laughs> To the head. They all relate to the head somehow. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. But no, so, I know what yeah, I know ahead, what sorry. you mean, Ash. I was just gonna just gonna say that like I, I really like the kind of bright, overexposed, yes. flat mm. feel to everything. And that first moment of violence, like uh the actor's performance really sell it as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you go, okay, I'm I'm starting to get into this kind of creepy world. And then yes. we have like the uh, I'm getting my mallet meme yeah. where it's just like okay now it's just it kind of it tries to walk this line between being kind of realistically creepy enough to draw you into this very strange world and then just also being a bit silly mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah. I think so. The distancing is great and, and the flatness is great. And I think that, you know, the silly thing is like, that's what some of the people who I heard saying they liked the movie were like, oh, I didn't realize it was going to be so funny, you know, and they liked it for that reason. I mean, really, it does seem like it's trying to be funny sometimes. And sometimes yes. it is funny. Sometimes it, it doesn't, it makes jokes without making them in that kind of nervous, anxious, you know, Xander from Buffy way that everybody now makes jokes. Oh my in God, movies. Yes. But like, yeah. but it, it, and it, and it pulls it off. But I think by and large, this is supposed to be not just a comedy. Right. And so the flatness, I think really would have done something for it. You know, if you read fairy tales, they're all very flat you know, they're all very, there's no character development. There's no whatever. It's just plot. You know, it's just one thing yeah, yeah. happening after another and the strangeness of the things or the magical aspect of the things. So you could have had characters that actually were deep and developed made amongst um, something that was totally flat. So this is a little bit contradicting what I said before about not caring about the cult, but, but you're right. It tried to sort of delve into um, the kind of visceral, the graphic and the emotional, and then sort of pull back and be like sort of flat and, and, and quaint and cute. And it, it, it should have, yeah, I feel like you're right. It should have just pushed one, you know, hard. Yeah. There is a character who kind of embodies this tonal inconsistency, right? And that's the character of Mark, Mark. played by Will Poulter. Uh, Mark, who's just arrived from like an 80s buddy comedy film. Uh, <laughs> and he's like the, the, the horniest straight man in Sweden, the guy who is constantly like tripping over his feet and falling flat on his face. And we're like, I, firstly, it's completely baffling to me that he's. Uh, it, it, so many of his lines are like these ADR add ins. Like there's this one. <laughs> throwaway line where they walk into the compound for the first time and you hear Mark go uh, I didn't realize we were going to stop in Waco before yeah. we went to Sweden <laughs> yeah, and I'm like yeah. if you have to say it come on right <laughs> and like literally every, every uh, other line of dialogue from him is like oh check out that babe and it just it's just like <laughs> No, it's like it's what? like ski school yeah it's so, <laughs> it's so ridiculous and like I mean um yeah, yeah. Will Will Poulter really sells the character, though. Like, I think he does an amazing <laughs> job of being mm. that '80s buddy comedy guy. But uh, one of the things, like, like you were talking about the comedy of this film, and and one of the the, the places I kind of went to as like a recent point of comparison was um, Get Out. You know, like like mm. like Get Get Out is is a very kind of it's really horrific. It does the scares incredibly well. It's, it's also tackling some important social issues very, very competently. And then, and then you've got like the goofy buddy character who's, who's just constantly like, right. like cutting in those little bits of comic relief, but get, get out. Does it well <laughs> I think is the difference here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so I, Sorry, sorry go, ahead. go on, Connor. No, go on, go ahead. <laughs> I, no, I mean, well, I also hate Get Out, so mm. I'm like the one person in the world that really strongly dislikes that movie, really? <laughs> like structurally. But I, but I think you know, I think you're right in the sense of the way that it's woven in. It's like if you're gonna do this, do yeah, it, yeah. you know. And I will also say, just to jump onto what you said, that the 
all the performances are actually amazing. I mean, I, I'm not someone that thinks that like, for the most part, I don't go to a movie and think that, a that an actor made or broke a movie. It happens very rarely. Sometimes you see it and you're like, holy shit, you know, or sometimes there's someone that's just so awful that they drag the whole thing down with them. But Mm. this, everybody was really good. I mean, I really enjoyed you know, everybody's performances. And I've of course really enjoyed seeing Jack Rayner's butt like 800 times in the movie, <laughs> you know, like the, the, so there was all, you know, everybody was sort of well placed, I think. And that is like, I think reminds me again that this movie does what I think like call me by your name is another really good example of a movie where it has every element it needs, but it doesn't know for me how to put them together. And it, it has wildly talented people. I mean, Ari Aster is obviously like an insanely like talented and creative person. And you can even tell when you watch this movie, even as it fails. So it, it's got everything, but like, um, I don't know. It doesn't know what to do with all of it. You know, it's, it's like an embarrassment of riches that it doesn't know how to, you know, spend or distribute. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's really telling that Hereditary was last year and that was like the big breakout film for Ari Aster. And then this has been, I think, I, I think I read somewhere that they were working on this, like within weeks of it actually being released. So clearly this uh-huh. is a script that was like written that maybe could have cooked a little bit longer and things would have would have been a little more cohesive and everything would have kind of clicked into place. Um, and it's a shame. I think give give the man a big old wheelbarrow full of money and then like leave him alone for like two years to see what he does. I think that would be a really good way to deal with somebody like Harry Astor. And don't immediately go, what other scripts have you got in that drawer? That, that one that you wrote in that six-week period when you were dealing with the breakup? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, we don't need re- rewrites. No, no, stop shooting. Yeah, uh, but you, you're so excited about the third movie, right? Like the third, like the third movie is the one I'm really excited about because this one was, you know, I, I didn't think it pulled off or like the movie that the guy who did the witch is doing. I'm super excited to see because he had a lot of time, you know, mm. I don't know. Do you guys know the story with the production of this? Like, how did he get this? I mean, was it just after hereditary came out or even while he was making hereditary or did he make the two movies simultaneously? Cause this was really, really quick. I mean, it had to have happened immediately after like the turnaround on this one is almost instant. Yeah, it was, it was shot on location in um, Hungary, like this time last year, which is insanely fast for a big, like tentpole summer release that is quick work yeah that's 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 like Um, a turnaround time for like 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 paranormal investigation eight or something (laughs) (laughs) um but he there was uh from what i understand there was a script that was already in existence but after going through uh, a very difficult breakup that was made the central kind of conflict of of the film uh, and so you kind of have that first act that's put on to the beginning of the of it to make everything kind of hang together. Um, but yeah, I, I it was summer and autumn of 2018 that they were shooting, which is that that's that's such a quick production time that no wonder there are bits of this which don't really feel like they 
cohere into something complete. But as you say, Connor, like he's clearly this insanely talented guy. Like the direction is is always interesting and engaging. He gets incredible performances out of the crew, uh, out of the cast and crew. Like if only there had been like another six months, I think. Right. right. Yeah. What What is it? Um, what was I going to say? What is it? Do you think that? I mean, it's been really well received, and not just by you know, the critics who you can never really know if they're just getting paid to say it or right. whatever at this point. But like, it's really well received by the public and I don't get it. I don't get why people are in love with this except to say that I imagine people watching it and feeling they enjoy it ironically, which is a shame because Hereditary was such a deeply felt movie. So I can see people being really taken by some of the visual aspects of this film mm -hmm. and then really getting involved with the characters in the same way you would while watching Drag Race. So, I mean, this movie <laughs> has a lot in common with RuPaul's Drag Race. So, I mean, I can see people like enjoying it in that way. But I, the, the, see, really the only way I can see that it had become so popular is that it has struck some sort of ironic tone with with others but i i don't know why do you think it's so so well received I, I have like a grim reading of this and like okay um like just generally speaking cinema right now uh, popular cinema right right the popular fare is is just like seven thousand disney marvel star wars movies happening every month and so we have like this 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 Levitico treatment strobe just blasting our brains with like these like poorly colored, awkwardly plotted, strange like Disney investment opportunities, and and like along along comes Ari Aster with like this beautiful like like this this movie is visually just fantastic, right? And yeah, it's amazing. It looks so and good it, there are going to there are going to be midsummer themed weddings happening. oh yeah i know this this is absolutely a thing that's going to start happening yeah the the swedish tourist board is about to see a huge boom and like but yeah like visually visually this movie is a treat you know and then the the plot the plot stumbles yes the plot the plotting is awkward it, it's doing a lot of like tonal things that don't make a lot of sense however what it, it is trying right it is it is attempting to put forward you know like like ideas of grief ideas of of how we manage strained personal relationships larger questions about what it what it kind of means for your society to be doing something horrific and it, it's mm -hmm. at least attempting to engage with these things when a lot of the other popular fare right now is is just kind of like status quo good now watch two big cgi slabs just kind of slap each other for an hour and I think, like, you know, that might be one of the reasons why people have gravitated towards this movie. I think that's definitely part of it. And and I think it's really telling that quite quite a lot of what has been produced by the hot takes industry uh, <laughs> around this film has focused on, like, key moments from it rather than the thing as a, as a whole, right? So we talk about uh, there, there have been takes, uh, hot takes aplenty on the opening 20 minutes. There have been hot takes aplenty on the character of Mark and the awkward social dynamics of being in a relationship with, with your boyfriend who is probably a bit shitty and having to hang out with all of his shitty friends. 
there have been hot takes and plenty about the, the very ending of the film and Christian being burned alive. Um, yeah. But as, as a whole, as a coherent uh, objet d'art, I, I don't know <laughs> if... I don't know if there's been a, a, a kind of real engagement with that on a kind of popular level, but I get why people have, have kind of latched on to those uh, little relatable moments which are listed throughout the, the film. So um, what do you yeah. think? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, just to sort of actually bring both your points together, I think that the... You know, we've been in a lot of ways trained to see things in a fragmented way now, right? So, like, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's—I mean, there are lots of there are lots of things to say about that, and it's not just a critique of that. I think that there's something useful about being able to see things in a fragmented way. But I think that you're both right. It's like because it's all these sort of the schlocky and poorly colored blockbusters oh, yeah. like just the, the latest Godzilla movie like where all these like fight scenes and big monsters in the rain you know and it's just like gray and so like muddy. slate blue it's just so bad yeah it's so bad and I think that um, you know seeing something that's like a spectacle which is what you want to see when you see a blockbuster movie and also having been you know, in a lot of ways, our culture is moved into this fragmented way of sort of zeroing in on one thing that we can pick up mm -hmm. and pick out and talk about, whether it's, you know, this celebrity said this horrible thing or whether it's like, here's, you know, the world is terrible. Here's two puppies playing in a bathtub you know, or whatever. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. Th that sort of that sort of cultural response to things lends itself well to a movie like this where you can you know, at once enjoy a spectacle and then also feel intense response to certain moments. Mm -hmm. And there are really some, uh, away from just the first chapter, um, there are some really great moments in this movie that you can pick up on. I mean, I almost like could be persuaded to like this movie from those co-grieving scenes yes, alone. Yes. Th those scenes are the best part of the movie. They're so intense mm. and they, th they're really fucking horrifying mm -hmm. and, and, and great. And I think um, maybe I forget which one of you wanted to talk about maybe part of the sort of problem of those co-grieving things. I'm not sure, but like those moments, they, they, they're sort of open to what the meaning might be if we want to take them as some sort of allegory. They're creepy. They mm. uh, move the plot forward in a way and deepen the character in a certain kind of way. So they do a lot of the heavy lifting in this movie, and they're really great. So I could see a scene like that and be like, wow, that movie was fucking awesome because it gave me that. But I think you're right to say pull back as a whole. Don't take this movie as fragments. And it just does not it just does not hold together. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. And, and to, to the co-grieving scenes specifically, like I think <clears throat> one of the other things that, that that's kind of like, this has kind of always been true of blockbuster cinema, but it just feels more true now is that like blockbuster movies tend to kind of as an overarching theme, just have defending the established or the, the status quo, right? Right. Kind of, kind of enforcing how things are is fine. You know, like, like that's that's the core through line of every single Marvel movie is that things are fine and we need to defend that fineness. We know, you know, defend the norms. But something this movie does, even though it's not, it fumbles its way through it, is, you know, like status quo at the beginning is a nightmare. 
you know, st- status quo mm. is Danny not not having uh, a healthy way to cope with these problems, being in this kind of codependent, crumbling relationship. And and the path through that, that that the movie kind of presents for her is is learning to be part of a community again, learning, learning how to share her pain with with the people who will help her carry it and find recovery through community. You know, it's it's a rejection of like this atomized and isolated individualist attitude and a movement towards something collective, even if it doesn't doesn't quite spell that discourse out as clearly as I might make it seem. <laughs> this I think ties into some like really interesting big questions about this film because I really like those scenes as well, and I think this notion of of gr- grief is essentially uh, grief or any kind of um, mental health struggle more broadly being a sort of privatized phenomenon is something that is. Uh, culture, both culturally prevalent and pretty damaging to a huge number of people. So those moments where you, where she is kind of drawn into this network of relationality, you go, oh, okay, yeah, I, 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 I sort of get why someone would choose to be here. Um, I think that's those are really interesting and actually really important. And it ties into what this cult as a whole is about, right? Which is about um, affect. They they emphasize affect a great deal, and I think the anhedonia of contemporary capitalist culture is something that people are on some level intuitively aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I and and I think just to pull back the the cult thing, is this a culture or is it a cult? It's not really like we're not sure. <laughs> do you know yeah. what I mean by the difference there? It's like yeah, yeah. like do like and that is, again is that's the interesting question when the people walk off the cliff like do you want to save people from this or do you you know are people being brainwashed or is this sort of a cultural thing that's happening and yeah it doesn't really go any, anywhere for that so the cultural critiques that this could make are difficult too mm-hmm. are we looking at something insular are we looking at something that's meant for us to reflect on cultures and the way that we treat each other as a whole like you can't really do that in this movie and so like you know i know there have been a lot of interviews with ariaster about like well where did you get all this from and you know to me you know as someone who knows about the occult and cults and you know doing doing ethnographic some ethnographic preliminary ethnographic work mm-hmm. i can see that like it's just it's actually not really a good or solid or coherent portrait of that either um you know you study study rudolf steiner that's something i know a lot about and it just is not reminiscent of that at all the drawings all over the stuff like the walls of the place where they sleep they're really cute and they're cool but they look like the kids section at ikea they don't look like it's like when you have a horror movie and they're like we've discovered this ancient book and they open it and it looks like the monster manual from Mm D, and you're like well those pictures (laughs) those pictures are definitely not from like the six like the you know like the 16th century you know or whatever you know and if you want again this is another reference outside but you know if anybody's seen this the sinner season two um with i mean it's a it's a good show the first season is pretty good but the second season is pretty is i think astonishing with this actor carrie coon who is just incredible in it there's a sort of cult in there religious cult or um What's that movie? The David Cronenberg movie, The Brood, is it called? Yeah, um, yeah. Like these give really great pictures of um, 
cults and the ambiguity between cult and culture that can create some kinds of tension. But again, I don't really know where to locate any critique either of this movie is presenting it. It's messy in that that way as well i feel like i'm mostly just saying negative things about this movie but it's it's fine yeah as far (laughs) as far as the critique goes i'm 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 like a cultural level the 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 express critique of of like american or quote-unquote western society or i i don't know if the film as as a or like like i don't i rather rather i'll say this as i don't know if ari aster sat down and he was like aha i shall i shall make this like uh, esoteric society kill their grandparents and then we can use that to have a discussion on how we treat our parents you know like i don't think i don't i don't know mm. if we there's enough evidence to say that he sat down to do that but i think that we can certainly use this text as as a vehicle for like this this line of questioning you know because part of me part of me can't shake this idea that like so uh, Danny's parents die a really horrifying and tragic death. And, and it's kind of established that the reason they die is because Danny's sister has some very intense mental health problems that, aren't, that are clearly not getting the treatment they deserve. And anyone familiar with trying to get mental health care in the United States knows it is an eternal uphill battle. It is insanely expensive. And the wait times are massive. So, so the care is just like lacking and like danny danny and her family are clearly well to do but i don't think it establishes that they're like ludicrously wealthy that they could just have like an on tap therapist showing up whenever they need it and so like like you know part of me part of me wonders like okay like if if we had a better uh, healthcare system something more communal you know that we see later on in this cult do do danny's parents die are danny's and her sister's issues more or managed in a way that is healthier and I think like that that's a question that the text is presenting with us, even if the people who've created this text didn't necessarily sat down with or sit down with agency and formulate it as such. Right. Yeah, I mean I don't think that like I mean I think most movies where at most narratives that seek to be political, like I've said this before and it pisses people off, but I don't, I actually think that there is no political art. I think that there's art that politics arises from because I think that art is a bigger container than politics. Oh yeah. Art contains politics. And so when I, when someone sets out to make a political statement or a political move or even sort of an, just to really push an idea like you're talking about with the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- I think that that ends up being terrible. So if Ari Aster did that, like I actually think this would be much worse if he did that. And mm-hmm. I don't think he did that either. Yeah. I think that this is something he thought, I mean, I might be wrong about this, but I think this is something he thought, oh, this could be really interesting. And maybe those questions did sort of swirl around in his mind, but like he decided to make the art his first responsibility and so the even though it fails i think ultimately as a film film overall it doesn't fail in that way thank god for 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 me because that would have really pushed it over the top where i would have been pissed off about (laughs) about it (laughs) um well yeah sorry well i was just gonna say i kind of have a i kind of have a theory here that maybe ties together what we've both been talking about because i I really, I really like this line of criticism, and I think the problem is, what is it that makes folk horror as a form work? Is that folk horror is essentially a historicizing art form, right? So if you think about 
things like Witchfinder General or Blood on Satan's Claw or the other one of the, 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 the trinity of English folk horror, The Wicker Man, all of it was about a kind of historical reaction to the contemporary countercultural struggles which were beginning to kind of fracture. They're mm-hmm. films that kind of are undergird, undergirded by this sort of hippie phobia um, because they harken back to a, a, a paganistic, naturalistic lifestyle. And that's why... So they're kind of a, a historical form which makes them work. That's what drives the horror within them. This is a film that is focused... Like, explicitly, they talk about this community as about purging affect. So it isn't... Like, it tries at the very beginning to talk about this in sort of historical terms. You've gone back into nature, but it becomes very disconnected from an actual history, which makes it very difficult for the horror to to be grounded anywhere that seems real. And I think the point that you're making, Connor, about how aesthetically this has the appearance of a cult, but if you know anything about the occult or kind of occulture more broadly, you go, yeah, no, no. It absolutely shows this, right? Because it doesn't come from a genuine historical uh, source. It's It's been pushed through a very contemporary filter of affects and aesthetics that give it the appearance of a, a historical curiosity that's re-emerging violently into the contemporary present. But that isn't actually what's going on here. And that, I think, is really at the root of why I don't necessarily think this film kind of works. What do you think? I, I don't know if you buy it. <laughs> well, I mean, the only reason I agree with you, and I think that you've said that really well, the only reason why I would push back is that it did happen so well in Hereditary. You know, mm, he, yeah. he, he did have a cult in that movie. So, you know, my, my tendency is to agree with you and say, yes, this is coming from a place where the sort of contours of these kinds of things are not felt by the person who's creating this art. And yet he expressed it so well in, in Hereditary, right? So I think that, you know, it may just be... Like that might reveal to me that actually he is trying to say that this is a cult, like a whole culture and not just some sort of religious cult. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I haven't read what he said about those things specifically or what he would say if he wasn't being asked leading questions by interviewers or whatever, (laughs) but like, you know, so it's, so, so I'm not sure, um, maybe he, maybe he's not, (laughs) May, you know, in, in Hereditary, that cult was so clearly evil. I mean, it was mm-hmm. evil. And it felt almost like he wanted to, uh, he was trying to convert the people who viewed the movie to the payment cult in some weird way, you know, or that he was trying to represent something that was so striking on the screen that you felt um, maybe not implicated, but threatened by it you know, like truly threatened by just even seeing it, which I love. But in, but in this where the sort of evil of this cult was more ambiguous in a way, um, I think that that's the part where it, that's the part where it fails. So it may be that he's really good at portraying cults that are easy to sort of pin down, right? But when you have something that's more complex, um, 
and then you know at the end really just sort of falls into evil that just sort of falls apart into kind of you know bad expression maybe um that's what he can't handle hmm. what do you think yeah that's, th th that's really interesting because i definitely think that there's like in, in terms in terms of just like 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 without talking about or i guess to momentarily uh, in, in in so much as we can do this divorce it from the actualities and the realities of cults and esoteric religious movements in terms of just like filmic horror cults, you know, like there, there's a very, it's, it's, it's like the slasher in a way. There's a very set formula for, you know, de de depicting a cult and it, it, it involves hiding them. It involves darkness. It involves secrecy. It, it, it involves making sure that the cult is a lot like Jaws, right? You know, you don't show the monster and Midsummer, Midsummer's cult, or or the, this you know esoteric religious movement, or this little microculture, like however we want to talk about them, it's they're out in the open, they're bright, and like you know like when when you go back and think about the movie, you have you have all those little moments where like Pele's like oh you know like I lost my parents when I was little, they both burned up, you know Pele's parents were sacrificed, and when when she asked them oh what happens after you know with your winter years, what happens after seventy two, and Pele just like goes like you know does the whole throat cutting motion. You know, like when we go back and watch it, like they're, you know, like the, this, this cult's never really hiding what it's up to. Like, like they're, they're, they're cards around the table. The, the, these people that are going there are just kind of like stoned knuckleheads that, that just keep like <laughs> just willingly right. walking face first into like being sacrificed. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, totally. and, and so like, like this film is really breaking the mold or at least challenging the mold like how we kind of depict these things in the filmic and the horrific and that like you know like i'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to like find things because there's a, there are a lot of things that like interest me about this film because i think like i know a lot of other uh, like film critics this is a very co common refrain but I, I i sympathize with it that there's like there are two kinds of bad movies there there are bad movies because they're uninteresting and you forget them about them immediately like i, I cannot tell you like i saw avengers endgame and like I, the only things that are in my mind right now are like the like memes, J -j just all the memes that people have made. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. movie has been washed from me. <laughs> and like, and even like, as I was walking out of the theater, like I felt my mind reaching to try and hold on to anything that I had just been exposed to. But like, so there are failures that, that just don't do anything and they leave no impact. And then, and then there are movies like Midsummer, which this is trying to engage with a lot of really interesting things, a lot of divergent styles, some, 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 uh, like complicated tonal and plot elements, but it doesn't necessarily know how to juggle all of those pieces successfully. And so it's it's very interesting in the things that it doesn't accomplish. Yeah. Rant, rant yeah. over. I know I went like in four different directions there. No, no, no. I I, I guess I would, I would typify the di bad types of films. Maybe I would say it differently, but I agree with you. So like... For me, you know, I very often do not like the movies that I see, but I do like thinking about why I didn't like them, you know, and if I see a movie where I don't even enjoy the thought process of why I didn't like the movie, mm -hmm. then I know I've seen something truly, truly bad, you know, um, that I just, <laughs> yeah. I just don't even, like, I just don't even want to consider it. This was not that. I mean, this provoked productive like complaints and negativity in me for sure yeah. <laughs> um but i do 
I do feel I do, I mean that said I do feel let down. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. I definitely I definitely agree with you there. Like like I did. But even let down in like even let down in like my neg- my negativity, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish I wish that it were a little more that there were more to like sort of hold on to here. I'm trying to think of a good example of a horror movie where I really felt like very satisfied by something being extremely ambitious and just not just not making it you know um because that's that can be one of the best experiences and those can be movies that i truly love the experience even if i'm like oh, that movie failed if it really 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 was ambitious and i don't feel that way about this mm-hmm. i don't feel like holy shit like that really just fucking went for it yeah um and i think that that's the thing that's disappointing to me yeah that that is i yeah. I, I would generally agree with that like I, did, I definitely don't mean to say that like this this was this was like rogue artistic brilliance and when you do things like that you necessarily like like train train wreck is kind of like the goal of those kind of processes like i definitely don't think that this was that spectacular but but there were there were things that 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 were much more interesting than kind of standard fare. Um, as I put it after seeing it uh, on Twitter, it's like, what if Wes Anderson tried to remake Suspiria? <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not it's not bad, but <laughs> but it's just. Eh. Yeah, it's it's, and I think I think it really does suffer from this, you know. I I I always find myself going back to like someone like Jameson's famous. Uh, well, it's now become this kind of dehistoricized slogan, but the need to always historicize I think is so important because folk horror depends upon that process. You know, it depends upon. I, I given given that this is basically like the millennial wicker man <laughs> i did find myself comparing it a great deal to that uh, earlier film and i think that's why i end up feeling like there are interesting moments in this and and we've we've all seemingly come out of it going well it, it was it was okay but it doesn't have that kind of deep sense of like this is something i'm going to be creeped out by for like from now on <laughs> like this is going to make me this is going to make me terrified of people who rock flower crowns at festivals <laughs> this is because it, it won't it won't do that instead <laughs> instead i'll go oh they're doing the thing from midsummer that's cool <laughs> right, but also like also i just want to say it was boring like it was yeah. too long yep. and it was boring like i'm you know i've told you guys before we started that i really enjoyed the new child's play mm-hmm. reboot and mm. I'm not going to be thinking about child's play forever, you know, (laughs) um, but it, but it was, it was effectively done. It was, you know, it used tropes of like young adult Disney investigator kind of movies to create a horror movie. So, you know, using these kinds of, um, the, these, this current, you know, I love when, I love when horror movies do that. I love when House of the Devil did that. I love when The Loved Ones, which is one of my favorite horror movies, did that. I love when you sort of take these tropes, like, and in this case, it was the folk horror and, and run with it in a new direction. And maybe one of the tropes that's not used so often in, in horror is really great. But, 
the thing with child's play is I was excited and engaged the entire time. And so though I'm not riveted by it, um, I still in my seat loved the entire way through this. I was like, okay, you know, like so much of the enjoyment I derived out of sitting there was waiting for something more interesting to happen so that when it didn't, you just kind of, you know, you know, kind of have a final episode of lost feeling where you're just like, all right, <laughs> like you, just, you, you know, it, it was, it was over long. I mean, it was just too long and, and the pacing was just too, too slow. Yeah. There definitely, there definitely are a lot of scenes that feel like filler. Like Mark, Mark's character, especially like Mark's character, just just kind of like feels like like I, I don't know how that got inserted into this movie like somewhere along the line maybe somebody like like a test audience biased towards humor or something but yeah. it, it just it's just like it, it constantly like pulls the movie in these weird directions that never really have payoff right like this this, this movie like there, there 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 were so many moments in this film for me where, where I thought to myself like all right now is the moment now is when things are going to start going hard and we're gonna we're gonna start to have to like actually confront the incompatibility of of the way that this cult operates with these these American tourists, right? You know, like okay, like now is where we're gonna shift into like hostile tiles vi or something. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. like 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 this the scene where the scene where like like Mark literally takes a piss on on the sacred burial ground of of everyone in this cult, you know, like 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 back in, in into memory, you know. And I'm like, okay, like, okay, here's where, like, you know, like, they're going to capture their friend and, like, the tension's actually going to build. And it just kind of doesn't happen. And I felt the same thing when they jumped off the cliff. Like, everybody loses their mind. But then, like, the, the next scene, everybody's okay with it, I guess. You know? And, like, mm -hmm. it, it makes sense for Josh and Christian, right? You know, like, ostensibly, they're both budding anthropologists. So, like, the, the ability to, like, contextualize things in an academic sense... Like, I, I could see them, like, witnessing those deaths and being like, oh, okay, like, this is their ways and we're here to study. But, like, you know, like, Danny and Mark are just, they're just American tourists out for a fun, a fun week in Sweden. And, like, the, ten the tension never breaks with them. Like, they never get to a point where they need to, like, do something. And it happens with um, the, the other couple in the film, uh, Connie, mm -hmm. Connie and Simon. You know, like I, I, yeah, I yeah. really wish we would have followed Connie and Simon a little bit more closely because they actually have like some kind of escalating tension, but then they're just kind of written out of the film. Yeah, no, you're right. They're the they're the ones that <laughs> when you were talking about, I forget which one of you was saying it, where he like draws his finger across his neck and he's like, eh, you know, <laughs> like th this movie is more than it's it's pushing itself as being more real than a movie where a character can't see all the signs. Yeah. The characters are supposed to be smart and, and witty and educated. Like for them to not pick up on something and be like, I'm going to leave even after people fall to their deaths, just because they're anthropology students, they haven't even started their dissertations yet. True. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they're not going to stick around or they're going to be like, you know, I'll be back or whatever. Or like, like Especially. Yeah. They would have called their supervisor. Like, like in, like in your, your, your example, you told of your friend <laughs> totally or they would have yeah right or they would have just like 
at, they would have seen all the other signs. There were a lot of moments right. along the way, you know, and when, when Connie and Simon disappear, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's just like you would have, Oh, uh, I think they just stepped out or whatever, you know? Right. And, <laughs> yeah. And this Mark, is not Mark, the kind Mark of just gets, just gets lifted out of the entire film. And everyone yeah, goes, right. Oh, totally. that's, that's weird. <laughs> I th- they sure must have just went to get some really ago. salty licorice, but right. I think that like, <laughs> the like this isn't the kind of movie that excuses that kind of behavior you know Mm -hmm. it's too aware and so to see that here and there's something else about it's like that you guys are making me think which is a lot of the things that we're saying i feel like anybody involved in the film or anyone who praised it could be like yeah see it was supposed to do that because blah 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 and in some, yeah, yeah, yeah. in some ways, like, and that really irritates me, like when a movie, and I think that that's part of what's woven through the movie is that when a movie tries to protect itself from failing by padding itself with some kind of ambiguity, that to me makes a movie feel less courageous um, and less committed to what it's presenting. And that irritates me. And it's, it's funny because I'm, you know, I have lots of I've had, you know, some film people on my show. I had Phil Hay who wrote uh, Destroyer and The Invitation and a a few other movies. And, you know, and I had Lexi Alexander and so forth. But so I imagine having Ari Aster on my show. And now I know that I can't do it because (laughs) I'm doing this episode (laughs) with you guys. I'm just praying in my head that it'll be like that time when like, I think it was like Pauline Kael talks to alfred hitchcock and she's like well what she failed in in this movie yeah. <laughs> like, hitchcock just kind of like rolls with it and she has like the wherewithal to say that to him you know like you hope that filmmakers are appreciative of these kinds of comments and that if they heard the kinds of things that we are saying or if Ariasta heard these kinds of things that we we're saying would not um would would not try to respond by protecting the film at every turn with Oh, I meant to do that. I meant to do that. I meant to do that. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, then yeah. it's not just that the film becomes unassailable by our critiques. It's that you see that the film is not, it, it's not interested in engaging with the viewer uh, either as an individual or with just the viewer's responses collectively. And that to me is frustrating. Yeah. I really, I really like that you bring up your, your frustration with like a lot of the ambiguities in this film and like, the the kind of over we talked about the overuse of of like psilocybin and other i guess natural hallucinogenic compounds or whatever uh and like for me like a lot of that like the the first sequence i i don't want to say i enjoyed but like i kind of appreciated the direction it was going you know like this was opening her up and like allowing her to connect to things something along those lines but then like as 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 the cult starts to become more occult right as they start to become spookier and more horrific you know the the hallucinogens for me start doing what like insanity does in like lesser horror movies like like oh we have like we're we're really close to the perspective of a character who has a, a like a severe mental condition and so like we can't really appreciate if everything that's happening is actually happening and i feel like like this movie kind of starts to skirt that ambiguity a little bit with with Danny and her increasing acceptance of the cult you know like and that was kind of a question I was having while I was watching the third act and that's like is 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 Danny accepting her role here because she's finally found a place where she can heal and be who she wants to be 
Or has, is she just drugged out of her mind and she's been depressed for God knows how long and, and this is just like the death rattle of, of her body and her soul kind of just shaking out here. And it frustrated me that the film couldn't collapse in one direction or the other. Yeah, and you know, it's so interesting because like another movie <laughs> that's kind of like that is Neon Demon. Oh, yeah. It, 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 Neon Demon, I don't know how you guys felt about it, but when I saw Neon Demon, I actually did think about Neon Demon for like I, like seven, eight months afterward. Yeah. Like I kept thinking about it until I finally realized it was a great movie. And the reason why it was a great movie was because I couldn't fall on one side or the other mm-hmm. and nothing, no other movie had produced that feeling of total confusion in me in a way that was completely irresolvable. But the problem with this is that it's not just confusing and it's not just noncommittal. It's also like you are resolved to not trying to, stay in its ambiguity you're just irritated by it at the end you know yeah 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 neon demon's amazing (laughs) (laughs) good i'm glad you like it because i I, I like yeah i like that we've established that in our episode on midsummer that neon demon's actually really really good (laughs) (laughs) yeah in in conclusion of our discussion on midsummer go watch neon demon (laughs) (laughs) we have we've named a bunch of things that you can watch instead of this movie you know this is this has been a podcast about other better movies. <laughs> um, even though, even though, what I like is that I think all of us are still really looking forward to the next Ariasta totally. joint that comes out. All of us are still going to be like, yeah, of course, I'm going to go watch it. I think that's a testament to how incredible Hereditary is, you know, and also just like the competencies that we see in a lot of the elements in this movie. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, we, we, we've kind of been, like, we have been very thorough in our coverage of this film's shortcomings, but, like, to, to Ari Aster and, and the team behind this film's strength, like, this, this film was made on really short notice. Like, the turnaround time here is tight. And I joked earlier about how, yeah. like, you know, like, that's the turnaround time for a paranormal activity or, like, a direct-to-video Blair Witch clone, you know, and, like, this is, this is a blockbuster summer movie. And so, like you know given more time like this this could have been another hereditary yeah i i agree i think that maybe that's part of why we're talking about it in the way that we are is like we all see a greater better film inside this film oh, yeah. you know yeah yeah but the people that Definitely. like the people that really love this film i think that they are confusing their you know the the faithfulness and the potential they see in this film for the film that they saw oh yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i'm not saying someone couldn't genuinely like this film but the the i think as we said before the things that i see people saying about it are a little strange and i think you nailed it that they're fragmented or you know um or that they're let down you know they're just sort of let down by other movies so much like yesterday when i said that spider-man far from home is the best marvel movie people were like oh my gosh that's such great praise and i was like the other ones just suck like is that is that is that some great praise damn damn with false praise there (laughs) um okay well i think I think we've we have we have pretty much done the deep dive on <laughs> Midsummer, and we have we have come up with a whole host of other films that you should watch. <laughs> uh, 
is there is there anything that that either of you want to add to kind of top this off and 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 we can we can wrap, start to wrap things up um I, I just want i just want to really quickly talk about the scene that had me like laughing obnoxiously loud for like 30 straight seconds in the theater and and clearly annoying the people around me it's it's t- towards towards the final climax right uh, Danny, Danny's now the May Queen, and she's sitting in like this this magnificent flower gown on top of the pedestal, and and the cult leaders are like, "All right, Danny, like this is the moment. You know, we have all of our sacrifices lined up, and now you must choose. You know, uh, uh, who will you sacrifice? Your trash dick boyfriend that you just caught having sex with another woman, and he's kind of like lying in a chair, and he's been drugged, and he can't move or talk, or." Honorable Tobjorn, and then like everyone's patting him on the back as Honorable Tobjorn steps forth, and he's like smiling, and everything's happy. And I'm like, like that was just like the funniest moment in this entire movie. Like, like I'm almost, I'm almost cracking up again over it because like, like, like that 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 is a comedy riff right there. It is just like so ludicrous (laughs) that like it's very Monty Python. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's just shtick. Like her choice is like her her mediocre underperforming boyfriend. Or honorable fucking Tobior. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Would you rather? Would you rather save budget young Chris Pratt or this 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 handsome Viking who fosters abandoned puppies? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just just a little thing right there, but like ah, oh, that moment. That moment was just so ludicrous. Yeah, oh. yeah, that's very funny. I yeah, I have one more thing to say, mm-hmm. which is that the the final the sort of towards the final scene with the burning um I thought that it was actually a really good and horrific moment that one of them could feel it and the other yes. one couldn't. Yeah. That mm. that was really powerful. Um and we kind of wonder where the police with the the, the they shouldn't have had two people from the village in there. Um, they should have had the guy who could feel it and Christian mm-hmm. who also couldn't feel it. You know, they should have been that contrast I felt, but, but he, you know, just to, it's just not overcomplicating the narrative in that, in that case for no reason, because you're getting the person who's not feeling it uh, sort of, you know, who, who's there anyway. Although I guess maybe they're showing preferential treatment to one of the people that lives there, but that's really, that is a horror moment. I mean, that's a true horror moment. The person who thinks that they're going to experience bliss and then ends up, um, it's, you know, the Cenobites, you know, it's it's just a horror moment. And I really love that, you know? Yeah. I I also thought that scene was really interesting because I, I was thinking about like, Okay, does it like like is the horror here that like the 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 guy who kind of administers that like um that that sap that numbs them is is does does he have like was this like a personal vendetta did did he spike that guy's uh, balm or or is it just like you know like like this this is you know like approximate folk healing traditions like you know like you you know your mileage may vary and like that's the horror here for me is like. You know, he was supposed to feel bliss, but like, mean the dosage was off a little bit, or maybe he was kind of immune to the substance. Hmm. And so, like, I did, I did kind of think like, like it was interesting to the the ambiguity of why it's not working for him specifically. But I, I also really did like that Christian, Christian's character, if if anything, is an indecisive coaster, and even in his death, he's just placid and coasting. 
Yeah, even till the very end, because it was all decided when uh, that kind of window in which you could have ended something that was clearly just broken and wasn't working, and maybe there could have been a chance for both of them to become better people, that window slammed shut. And from then on, the only way this was going to end was him being paralyzed, stuffed inside a bear, and then burned alive. (laughs) And just in the only anti-furry movie we've ever had. (laughs) Oh, this this is a problematic film. You're right. Oh, man. But yeah, I, I I think your analysis that like, bear related like con like puns and costumes are just going to shoot through the roof oh gosh it's gonna be it's queen (laughs) queen and bear i mean it's just yep (laughs) i mean if it it, if it takes if it i mean at least though i don't really love this movie it was like far more irritated by when it happened with babadook because i was like man like that's a great fucking film like don't don't turn this into some dumb gay pride thing you know i, I, th- I thought yeah. that was like like for the babadook like i thought that was so interesting that's just such like a weird a weird <laughs> thing to happen you know i know it's really weird and i feel like the <laughs> the the idea of lifting yes there's some weird psychoanalytic thing there to say gay people are lifting the um third figure from a horror movie about a mother and their son Mm -hmm. up you know who's ostensibly like the weird father figure in that movie and like popularizing it is really (laughs) kind of hilarious (laughs) but this will it, it may happen with this movie which it won't bother me as much but i will be um, of course, irritated by the obviousness of it, you know. Yeah, the, the bear in a bear <laughs> that, costume is, is not that. It's low hanging fruit. And a queen, and a queen in a queen costume. Yeah, <laughs> legit. Uh, no, it's 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 not a question of of it, it might happen. I'm it will happen. It's, gonna happen. it's happening already. Yeah, I was going to say, is, going is, to... is it already happening at this very moment? <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. Right. <laughs> I guess there are worse things. There, um, are, there are there are worse things that that could be influencing the costume decisions of like the greater gay subcultures. So yeah, that's true. Shrug. Those, those I'll will take be this. done. Those will be done as well. You know, those will be done as well. <laughs> there's like Nancy Pelosi costumes coming. Oh, ouch! You know, oh, <laughs> that, that just like I felt pain in my soul right there. <laughs> <sighs> Grim. All right. Well, that, that's that's the yeah. darkest ending to a podcast we've ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we talked about this beautiful film full of uh, bright light and gorgeous flowers, and now I'm thoroughly <laughs> depressed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, well, thank you so much. Thank you so so much, Connor, for for coming on. Uh, time to do the obligatory plug. We did it at the top of the show. Let's do it again. Um. Everybody, please listen to Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Please do follow him on Twitter. Uh, and as we said right at the top when we were talking about Patreon, please do send him all of your money. Uh, <laughs> he deserves it. He makes some incredibly interesting and thought-provoking content. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. And for people who like this show and want kind of like starter episodes, there's one with Brian Evanson, the horror writer. Mm-hmm. As I said, there's one with Kelly Link, who's the MacArthur Award winning horror um, and Weird Tales author. And there's a really one of my very favorite ones with Greg and Dana Newkirk, who are paranormal investigators, and they bring along their haunted uh, doll um, for me to talk to on the interview. That is amazing. So, uh, those, amazing. those are all good ones to maybe start with if you're interested in horror. And there's Phil Hay, who wrote The Invitation as well. <laughs> amazing okay um well thank you so much again and thank you everybody for listening and we will see you next time thanks guys bye everybody thanks for tuning in creeps and comrades and remember stay Stay spooky. spooky